We're starting a new series today, and uh, we'll get into that here in just a second. But I wanted to start off by reading a, a scripture. It's Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 and 24. Matthew chapter 1, verses 23 and 24. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 24, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a really nice Christmas time passage of scripture. Uh, maybe if your Christmas morning routine involves a little scripture reading, this would be a good one to jot down. And before everybody tears into the gifts, you can pull out your Bible and you can read this. Or maybe read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. This is, this is maybe even a good one to put on, on an Instagram post. You know, have a nice picture and let everybody know that you know the real reason for the season. Um, just to make sure that nobody is confused about what it's all about. You know, put this scripture up there and then, you know, this is... Uh, uh, hashtag Jesus is the reason for the season, Christmas fan. You know, uh, is this your, uh, Patty, is this your, uh, no, Xmas fan, 64? No? Okay, I just, I didn't know. <laughs> Thought maybe Patty's a real Christmas fan. Now, I, just kidding, I didn't know that wasn't yours. Um, now, with a verse like this, I think it's wonderful because it brings to mind the things we love about Christmas. It brings to mind the trees and the, and the matching jammies and the gifts and the family. And I think we read a verse like this and we're like, oh, yes, I long for Christmas morning and I hope it snows and I hope we're all stuck inside with all the people that we love and we bought the perfect gift for everyone. I think that's kind of the image that it conjures up, sort of that Christmas nostalgia. But if you were a first century Hebrew person reading those verses, it wouldn't bring up those ideas at all. Not once would you think about taking a family photo and matching jammies after reading that verse. You wouldn't think about gathering around a Christmas tree. You wouldn't think about uh, having everybody together. You wouldn't think about gifts. You wouldn't think about any of that stuff. Um, you wouldn't, none of that would come to mind. Some friends of ours were at their parents' house for Christmas, and it was in the middle of the night, and Grandpa, who ended up being okay, but in the middle of the night, he had a medical incident, and it scared Grandma, so she hollered for help, and it woke almost everybody in the house up, and there was this crazy amount of turmoil as they were trying to figure out what was going on, what was going on with Grandpa, and they, of course, called 911, and the whole, evidently, it was a slow Christmas Eve, and everybody showed up. It was the EMTs, it was the paramedics, it was the police, it was the lights, it was the sirens, and it was just mass chaos as these, these people were tromping through the house trying to make sure that Grandpa was okay, and it turns out he had just been a little disoriented and dehydrated, and he was totally fine and of course they wrapped everything up and they left and and everybody was able to settle back in and maybe sleep for just a little bit now i say almost everybody in the house woke up almost everybody except for our friend's teenage son who had slept through the entire thing and he gets up the next morning and he's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and he's ready for Christmas and he doesn't understand why everybody in the house was, was groggy and exhausted and rattled because he had missed all the excitement leading up to the morning. And I think that's how a lot of us experience Christmas. We experience it as the morning, as the event, as the arrival of Jesus. We experience it as that moment, but we really miss all the drama leading up to that moment. Most of us interact with Christmas as if we're watching the sequel and we've never seen the original movie. Some of you have done that. How many of you have ever only watched part two or part three and you're not really sure what the hullabaloo is about? Me too. I watched Twilight Breaking Dawn part two 
and I didn't get it. I wished I hadn't watched it, but I didn't get it because I didn't understand any of the context leading up to the moment. True story, had I understood the context leading up to the moment, I still wouldn't get it with that particular movie. But I think with Christmas, a lot of us are just starting with Jesus, the star, the wise men, and we don't understand any of the drama that brings us to this moment, like why this is such a big deal, why, why this matters so deeply, so much. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to talk about the before Christmas story, the before Christmas story. And to do that, we're going to have to talk about the nature of evil. How's that for a Christmas series? We're going to be talking about how evil works in the world and in our lives as part of a Christmas series. And some of you are like, I brought guests today, Patrick. Uh, Could we not just stick with baby Jesus? Because that would be a lot more fun. Nope, sorry, buckle up. We're talking about evil today. I told this story years ago, and uh, so I apologize, some of you won't remember, but I, when I was in high school and our family lived overseas, a handful of us had gone camping. This was overseas camping. We picked camping for some reason in a gravel parking lot. It was incredibly uncomfortable. There was a lake near the campgrounds. I have a picture, a very pretty lake. It was beautiful, nestled at the bottom of these, uh, these little hills. Um, and nobody was swimming. It was kind of odd. Me and my friend would get up, and we were like, we're kind of bored after sleeping all night or not sleeping all night on this gravel parking lot. We're kind of bored, and so let's go swimming. So we'd grab our swim stuff, and we'd run down to the lake. There was this set of kind of earthen stairs that you would take to go down to the lake. And every time we went down, we passed this sign that neither of us could read. It was in Chinese, and neither of us could read uh, Chinese. And so we thought, oh, it probably is just the name of the lake or something like that. We'd go down, and we'd swim, and the water, you couldn't see through the water very far. You know what I'm talking about? There's lakes that are crystal clear, and there's lakes that are not, and this was one of those that was not. And the bottom was really muddy and mucky, and you'd sink down to your, about your shins, and it just, it wasn't very much fun, so we'd kind of splash around, and we were like, ah, this is boring. And we'd leave, and we'd run back up those stairs, back to the campground, and we'd sit around, and we'd get bored, and we'd run back down to the lake and swim for a couple minutes, and we repeated that process four or five times going up and down these stairs past this sign. One time as I was descending the stairs, I see a little bit of movement at my feet. Kids that have been in the youth group for years probably understand where this is going because I've told this story before. I see this little bit of movement kind of out of the corner of my eye and I step down on something that was scaly and squishy and that wasn't regular ground and I realized that I was probably stepping on something I didn't want to be stepping on so I I'm sure I hollered, and me and my friend sprinted to the lake, and we splashed around and had a boring time, and then we started walking back up to the stairs again. And we wondered what, what was on the steps. And sure enough, on this one step, at this one spot where I had stepped down, there was a snake. It wasn't very long, probably. Well, this is just a picture of the snake, I think it was, but probably not even this long, and it was kind of thick, and it had a heel indent right in the middle from where Patrick had squished it. It was dead. So me and my friend are looking at this thing. Of course, we're poking and prodding it, trying, you know, what is this thing? When a local hiker comes down the steps, and it's kind of an unusual, we're in a weird part of the country. It's unusual to see Americans in this country, much less two American boys poking at a snake, descending the stairs. The local stopped to see what we were looking at, and he said, do you guys know what that is? Well, my friend who spoke really good Chinese, I spoke enough to understand what he was saying, We said, no, we have no idea what that is. And he said, that snake is called a 100 pacer. Do you know why it's called a 100 pacer? 
And we said, we don't know why it's called the 100 pacer. We were dumb. And he said, it's because if you get bitten by it, you have about 100 steps or 100 paces before you keel over dead. And we were like, whoa, near miss. Wow, God was protecting us, protecting me. That's amazing. And then he looked at us and he saw our wet hair and our damp swimsuits and he said, hey, what are you guys doing? And we said, well, we were just down at the lake swimming. And he said, didn't you read the sign? And we said, no, we did not read the sign. Neither of us read Chinese. And he says, that sign says, do not swim because the lake is infested by poisonous snakes. And we had been down there in the muck and the grossness splashing around, evidently with poisonous 100 pacer snakes all around us. And we had no idea, no earthly idea. Whoa, that is pretty wild. Now I did, just for your sake, I did look up the 100 pacer thing and that's a myth. The snake will bite you and it will hurt, but you will not die. So I don't know that I actually narrowly escaped death. But it is kind of a gross thought to think that me and my friend were swimming around a bunch of snakes. I can see on some of your face there's a natural disgust. When you think about, you just think about snakes, it's kind of gross. Some of you are trying to be antisocial, you're trying to be counterculture, and you're like, no, I would like a snake for a pet, but deep down inside we know that that's not true. We know you're just trying to create some sort of identity around that. You don't want a snake because snakes are gross. They're not cuddly they're not fun but the the strange thing is when you think back remember we're talking about evil here when you think back to the very beginning of scripture to the garden adam and eve are the ones that made the choice but it was a snake that introduced the idea why is it a snake why not uh why not an alligator why not a monkey why not a zebra why is it a snake that slithers up to eve and says hey why don't you eat some of this fruit why is it a snake in that story because most snakes are perfectly safe, right? Actually, I don't know that, and I'm not about to find out. But I think I hear that's true. Snakes don't even have arms and legs. They're like, I mean, what in the world can they do to you? They can't, they, can, they, they slither, and that seems kind of gross. But it doesn't seem like snakes themselves are that dangerous. But I think every time we see one, they still will send us running. This, the fact that Minnesota doesn't have a ton of these kind of snakes is why some of you live here. That was the best thing you discovered when you moved to Minnesota, that it wasn't Alabama where everything's trying to kill you all the time. And you're like, I like this place. This is great. This is wonderful. Why are we so scared of snakes? Um, I googled <laughs> cute snake, and this is what I got. <laughs> it's pretty cute. He's got a grumpy old men hat on, and I, I, I will say that is cuter. That's still pretty gross. I still don't like it. You can put a hat on a snake, and it's not going to make me want to be around the snakes. They still send us running. Why? Because some of them, because with one little bite, they can do a lot of damage. They can, they can cause a lot of pain. They can, they can destroy with, with one little, you know, puncture wound or two little puncture wounds. In fact, in the garden, you have this story of evil being introduced by a snake. And yes, we, we can't like pretend that Adam and Eve didn't make the choice, 
but the evil is introduced by the snake. But in the very next story, as the author of Genesis is trying to get under, us to understand the choices that humans have made, Cain is upset and God talks to him. And he says this in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. He says to Cain, God says to Cain, if you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. Do you see what the author of Genesis is trying to get us to understand about the nature of evil? Is that it's, it's, it's dangerous. It wants to destroy us. It wants to hurt us. Evil is dangerous and just wants to make our lives miserable. And that's an important idea. It's an important concept to keep in mind. Because that's the biblical idea of evil. It's dangerous and it wants to destroy you. Let's talk about the world's idea of evil. We can't get away from it. We all have, have it or watch it or part of it. But social media has, has, has become um, a series of about 20, 30 second videos that you can mindlessly scroll through with hours of your day. Now, some of you are like, this is why I don't have a phone. This is why I don't have social media. But many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You just watch this 20-second video, and it's just all this random stuff, all these different people. And it can be everything from, like, here's a how-to video to here's some philosophical argument about the nature of evil. And I happen to be watching. I succumb as well. I happen to be watching this 20-second video of this person making this case. They were talking about a current cultural topic that's very controversial that if i were to suggest the topic in the room it might divide the room and they were talking about this topic and they were confidently asserting that that this this idea if it makes you happy then do not worry about what other people think remember as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else you are free to do what you like let's think about this for a second this is, a, this is a video, somebody confidently asserting, hey, if it makes you happy, don't worry about what other people think. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone, you are free to do what you believe is right. Have you heard something like that? Have you heard that idea? I mean, that's pretty common. You've heard it. We've all heard it. Now, the people on the TikTok video weren't making this claim, but this goes all the way back to a guy named John Stuart Mill. He was talking about the utilitarian principle, and his idea was is that government should not enact laws unless it's to prevent one person from harming another person. He called it the harm principle. Good-looking guy right here. That's John Stuart Mill. The only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized society against his will is to prevent harm from others. He was codifying an idea and giving it language and giving it shape. This idea is also known as the Wiccan Reed. It is the quote-unquote golden rule of Wicca and witchcraft. And it's stated this way, do what you will as long as it harms none. Now some of you are like, when you first suggested this, Patrick. I thought it sounded good, but then when you said this ugly guy said it and it was part of witchcraft, I'm getting less convinced that this is a good idea. Well, that's good because that's where we're going. The TikTok version of this is if it doesn't hurt anyone, knock yourself out. So God's idea of evil is that evil is dangerous and wants to destroy you. The world's idea of evil is if it doesn't harm anyone, do what makes you happy. 
Those are the two competing definitions that we have in our, in our world. We have the Bible definition, this trying to shape us, trying to, try, trying to create uh, choices and ideas and priorities in us, and we have the world's definition of evil. All right? Those are the two competing ideas. If it doesn't harm anyone, do what makes you happy. Now, let's think back to the garden. Let's think back to that fruit. The moral question in the garden wasn't, will eating this harm anyone else? That's not what the snake asked. That's not what Adam and Eve asked. They weren't thinking, will eating this harm anyone else? The question is, and this is important, and so if you're going to snooze the rest of the day, I want you to hear this. The question is, do we trust God or do we trust ourselves? Do we trust God or do we trust ourselves? I need that question to, 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 to just hang in the air for a moment for you. Because this is a question, whether or not you realize it, you're wrestling with constantly. You've wrestled it with it today, you will this afternoon, you will tomorrow. Do we trust God or do we trust ourselves? That's the question the Bible is asking us to ask. An enlightened 21st century North American who has been steeped in John Stuart Mills and Wiccan and TikTok ethics would say, hey, do what makes you happy. You have this fruit, as long as it's not harming anybody else, do what makes you happy. And what would be the choice that a person would make based on those ethics? Eat the fruit every single time. A person who's steeped in biblical ethics would say, no, 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 that's not the question at hand. The question at hand is, do you trust God when he said, don't eat the fruit, or are you going to go with your own gut instinct? That's the question at hand. Those are two different questions, and listen, they will lead to two completely different outcomes. This is really important stuff that we're talking about. Two different questions, two different outcomes. Look at what the scriptures say, all kinds of authors from scriptures. John 8, 34, Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. He doesn't say, oh, it didn't make you happy, bummer, try harder next time. He says, when you sin, when you commit evil, you're becoming a slave to sin. For I see that you are full. This is Peter's description of Simon, uh, a, a sorcerer. He says, I see that you are full of bitterness and you are captive to sin. Sin is, 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 has the steering wheel in your life. Ephesians 6, 13 says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground because it's going to be fighting against you because it wants to destroy you. It wants to cap captivate you. It wants to beat you. But you need to stand your ground. James 1.14 says each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. What they're saying is that evil is this progressive downward spiral that results ultimately in your destruction. It starts as a little snake bite. But then the poison spreads. That's the nature of evil. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Every single time that downward spiral of sin has begun, it started with the question, should I trust God or should I trust myself? Every single time. And every single time, the sin that destroys us and sometimes others around us starts with the assertion that this won't hurt anyone else. People won't even know. Every time. You hear it with sex. It's consenting adults. It doesn't matter. They should be able to do what they want. 
It's not our business, right? It doesn't hurt anyone else. Every single time with addiction and self-destructive behaviors, we, it's, it's my life. I can do what I want. And then people get snake bit by that evil, and it slowly destroys them. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you were trapped in a choice and you didn't know how to extract yourself from it, a bad choice? Or maybe caught in a lie and there's just no way out. You either have to damage this relationship or you have to damage your reputation. There's no way out but to do damage. That lie started with, eh, this won't hurt anybody else. Or maybe caught in a relationship you have no right to be in, but the only way out is to destroy a different one or buried beneath debt and stress and anxiety. Let's go back to our cozy Christmas verse. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. She will give birth to a son. Listen how this would sound to someone who understands the nature of evil. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, meaning God will save, because he will save people from that muck that they're stuck in, from that trap that they have allowed themselves to be caught in. He will save people from their sins. That is Christmas. That is Christmas, the arrival of the one that is going to, to guide us out of this, this situation we have gotten ourselves in. That is what it's all about. He will save his people from their sins. But there's more. Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 1, 24. All of this took place. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Trivia time. This is a quote from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, bonus points if you know which book of the Bible is being quoted here in Matthew. Bonus points. Isaiah, Isaiah correct. Super extra bonus points if you know what chapter is being quoted. Oh, hey, I just want everybody to know that that was my dad that answered both those questions. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 7, yes. Whoa, uh-oh. Yeah, we'll just edit that out of the online video later. No, we won't. Isaiah chapter 7, the uh, apple does not fall far from the tree, right? Isaiah chapter 7. I need some help for this part. I'm going to need some volunteers. Um, Isaiah chapter 7 uh, is a play. It's a true story, but it's a play, and it requires a cast. It's a cast of five, and it won't be long, and nobody we're going to have to do uh, anything too much. But I need, uh, I need a person... Um, I didn't ask everybody to do this, but I'm going to, Malachi, you're going to help me out. Is that all right? You, you mind coming up here? All right, Malachi, you're going to be the kingdom of Judah, okay? The kingdom of Judah. Go Vikings. All right, Malachi is the kingdom of Judah. Now, you guys, Bible nerds, you know that the kingdom of Israel split into two parts, right? One was the southern kingdom of Judah. One was the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah had two tribes. Dad, you know who, which two tribes those were? Oh, Australia does. We got Benjamin and we got Judah. And they became the kingdom of Judah. Okay, bam, here we go. Now, they're doing their own thing. They have a special prize. Let me see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this is their special prize because they retained control of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has the temple. And the temple is where you worship God. And they, Judah, this small little kingdom, retained control of 
Jerusalem. It was a prize. Other people wanted it. In fact, there were a couple other nations that wanted it. Just to their north was their cousins and neighbors, the tribe of Israel. So I'm going to ask, let's see, um, Greg, you didn't volunteer for this, but I'm going to have you do it anyway. All right, Greg, you and uh, Judah do not, you're not getting along exactly. You don't hate each other because you have a shared history, but you're just kind of annoyed with one another. How would that look? Yeah, exactly. You nailed it. Very good. Okay. You do look annoyed all the time. Okay. So we've got... Now, Israel was a much bigger kingdom in terms of the tribes. There were 10 tribes that became part of Israel, and they got to retain the name Israel. Now, here's the thing. There was uh, another kingdom nearby. We're going to talk about what they did in a second, but their name was Aram or Aram. Aramaic comes from this, uh, from this country. So I'm going to ask uh, Tim, would you be... Um, Aram, 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 whatever you want. Tim is going to be, Tim, uh, well, Israel and Aram are, are neighbors. They're kind of buddies. All right, they're hanging out. They li- there you go. They like each other. They're doing okay. And then finally, there was the dominant global world empire, bigger than everybody else, and that was the kingdom of Assyria. Alex, would you do me the honor of being the king the kingdom of Assyria. Now, here's the deal. So you come over here, right over here. All right, Assyria is big and scary, and the Assyrian kingdom, I mean, terrifying, right? The Assyrian kingdom is this huge, massive empire, and within just a few decades, they doubled their size. They actually doubled their size, so it's kind of like around the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas. They doubled their size, right? So Assyria is like, you know what? I am going for world domination. I'm going to destroy the net. Let's see who's next on my to-do list for who to conquer. Oh, that's Aram. So, uh-oh, Aram starts to get a little nervous. He's shaking in his boots. Hey, you got boots on. That's great. He's shaking in his boots, and he says, oh, I don't, I don't know what to do. I think I've got to develop an alliance. And so he says to Israel, he says, do you want to form an alliance with me? And Israel says, absolutely I do. Yes, very good. So these two form an alliance. Very good. Now, they're still a little nervous because they're like, "Ah, I don't know. Even with our combined forces, I'm not sure we can take on Assyria because he's so big and bad and scary. He's a teddy bear. But still, he's big and bad and scary. We think we need to get yet another kingdom. And so they go to Judah... And they say, will you form an alliance with us? And Judah says, correct. Judah says, no, not having it. In fact, Judah is far, exactly. Judah's far enough away that he's like, ah, Assyria is going to wear themselves out with these two guys and I'll probably be fine. Now, here's what's crazy. These two guys are not the brightest bulbs in the drawer. Is that the thing, the sharpest tool in the, whatever. These guys are not that. And they think, you know what? Uh, we'll show him we're going to start a war with, or with Judah, even though there's an impending war with Assyria. That's a pretty dumb thing to do, right? And so they are like, uh, we're about to fight you. And Judas, Judah gets really scared. I have a verse. This is Isaiah chapter 7. This is the actual chapter. Go to the next verse if you would. Uh, now the house of David, bam, right here, was told that Aram, 
Bam, right there, had allied itself with Ephraim. That is another way of saying Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz, that's the king of Judah, and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest were shaken by the wind. Show us being scared. Oh yeah, very scared. Very convincing. He is very scared. This is scary stuff, folks, because something bad is about to happen. All right, so what he does, let me look at my notes before, so I don't get lost. Are we all following here? Okay, this is good. This is good stuff. You guys are learning a lot here. Uh, so what he does is God tells Isaiah, I'll be Isaiah, okay? Because Isaiah is a prophet and he tells the truth and he preaches and stuff like that, right? <laughs> God tells Isaiah to go to Judah and tell them, hey, bud, don't worry. It's going to be fine. You'll be okay. All right? Yeah, you'll be okay. Now, does that convince, do you think Judah was convinced by Isaiah's words? No, he was still scared. i got to bring my notes over here. Bring them back over here. Don't break it again. I know. We need somebody to fix that. All right, he was still scared. Um, he says, be careful, keep calm. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. <laughs> That's a Old Testament insult. These two are two smoldering stubs of firewood. These two hotheads are about to flame out. That's pretty good. Come on. I worked on that for a long time. Okay. They're two smoldering stubs of firewood. And then Isaiah chapter 7 verse 9. But he warns him, hey, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. So you need to trust God. You need to trust God. Okay. Got it? Yeah. Is he going to do it? He's absolutely not going to do it. That's exactly right. <laughs> Uh, so, Judah trusts God. Nope, Judah is still waffling. And so God sends Isaiah to say, okay, I'm going to prove to you that I'm on your side. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And you're like, I recognize that verse. Yeah, this is where it's from. Now, this is really important. Do you think that Isaiah was telling Judah, just wait several hundred years because Jesus is coming and it'll all be okay? No. There was to be a boy born from the lineage of David whose name would be Emmanuel. And he says before, verse 16, the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. The land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. They will destroy. Before the boy is old enough, how old does a kid have to be to old, be old enough to know what is good and what is bad? Twelve? I think it's younger, all right? I think, I, think, I think two or three. Jake, do you know good from bad? Yeah. All right, so ten at least. We got the younger kids out of here, so I don't know. Theo, do you know good from bad? Yeah, he does, Theo. So we're like at four, maybe even three. Even at three years old, even just wait. If you just hold out for just a few years, these two dummies are going to go down in flames. <laughs> just hold out. Trust me, trust me. What does Judah do? Judah do? Does he trust Isaiah? Does he trust God? He does not. In fact, Judah does something crazy. Judah goes to Assyria. I know. <laughs> and he says to Assyria, he says, hey, buddy, if you'll protect me from these two yahoos, I will do anything that you want. And Assyria, whose eye is on world domination, says, you got it. You and I will form a partnership. How's this going to go for Judah? Not well, right? So these two guys flame out and die. They're gone. See ya. You're dead. You can go sit down. 
And now it's just Judah and Assyria left. Okay? Now, Judah did not trust God. He said, Isaiah told him, look, I will even give you a sign that it's okay to trust me. Come on, you just got to trust me. And Judah was like, no, I got to go with what I can see. And Assyria looks big and bad and strong. And so I'm going to side myself with him. Judah did not trust God. And so Assyria was like, yeah, we got a partnership. But what ends up happening here? Assyria is like, hey, buddy, you got to give me stuff. And so Judah's like, well, the only thing I have of value is, is the temple and the things in the temple. And so I guess I could give those to you. And so Judah, Ahaz, King Ahaz, travels to Assyria to give him articles from God's holy temple. And then Assyria, or Judah brings back, let's say Assyria has some other gods. I don't know. Here's a good one. Uh, this thing. Judah, Assyria has some other gods. And like, you know what? I really need you to worship my gods in, in Judah as well. And so Judah brings back these other gods and these other articles, and he sets them up in the temple in Israel and starts worshiping them. Bad news. We even read in 2 Kings that Judah, King Ahaz, sacrificed his son in the fire as an offering to the god Molech. Just a little, just protect me, Assyria. That's all I want. Just a little, just a little choice. Just a little trust or a lack of trust in God and a, a trust in Assyria. Just a little bit. And you see the downward spiral that this becomes. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And eventually what happens to Judah? Judah gets taken over and taken and subsumed into Assyria. And then, yep, Judah's gone. See you later. And all, yeah, very good. You guys are great. And then all that's left is Assyria and big, bad Alex left standing. You can have a seat, Alex. Thank you. That was awesome. So that verse that we read in Matthew chapter 1, they understood that verse in a way that we don't. They understood that verse as a promise of God for God to fight for them. And they chose the wrong thing. That's how they historically uh, understood that promise. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to the son and they will call him Emmanuel. Do you see what Matthew is doing? This is crucial. Matthew is saying with the arrival of Jesus at Christmas, with the arrival of this new king, you have a new opportunity to decide, are you going to trust yourself or are you going to trust me? Are you going to do what you think is right, or are you going to follow me? That's what Christmas is. That's what the arrival of Jesus is. Now, this moral question, this is so important. Do I trust God? Here's where Christians get messed up, and here's where some of you are right now. I've had so many conversations with people who do not get this crucial piece right here. Do you trust God even when you don't understand? You ask yourself, just sit with that question for a second. Do I trust God to do what he's asked me to do, even if I don't understand why? Kids, do you trust your parents when you don't understand why? You remember how many times you asked them, well, why do I have to go to bed? Why can't I eat candy for dinner? Why can't I punch my sister in the face? And even if your parents didn't answer you, you need to still trust them. Do I trust God even when I don't understand why? Let's, let's restate that. Do you, Christian, only trust God when you understand? Sit with that for a second. Do you only trust God when? Hey, uh, Judah, don't go align yourself with Assyria. It's not going to work out well. 
uh, no, I think I'm going to because he's bad, big, bad, and scary, and he's going to take care of my enemies. No, it won't work out well. Don't do it. Don't do it. Well, I think I'm going to do it. Do you trust God when you, only when you understand? Let's restate that again. Let's be more pointed. Do you only trust God if you agree? I'll do what God wants as long as I understand and agree with what God wants. That's another way of saying you do not trust God. You do not trust God. That's, this is really important. Because there are things that God is going to ask you to do that you don't fully recognize the value of. And you have to decide, why shouldn't I eat that apple? It looks delicious. Or that fruit. It looks wonderful. It looks, I mean, I want everything about that. Why sh- it's not going to hurt anybody. Why shouldn't I eat it? Do you trust God or not? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. A battle cry that God will fight on your behalf. The arrival of Jesus on the earth, I mean, sure, take family pictures and matching jammies. That's great. I don't mind at all. But the arrival of Jesus on the earth was a battle cry that God is going to defeat sin and evil, even the sin and evil in your life. That's what Christmas is. That's what it is. I Feel free. The songs are fun. The colors are fun. The lights are fun. The festivities are fun. But understand that the arrival of Jesus is a battle cry from God to defeat sin and evil, even in your life. That is Christmas. I'm going to wrap up with this. Um, Just a couple weeks ago, a family uh, was celebrating Thanksgiving, and they decided to take the whole extended family on a cruise. Some of you may have read about this in the news. Cousins, aunts, uncles, everybody. Well, one cousin uh, was out a little bit too late, and he doesn't exactly know what happened, but he fell overboard. And he said he was unconscious in the water. Don't know how he didn't drown. He says when he came to, there was no cruise ship in sight, and it was just him floating in the Gulf of Mexico. Imagine the hopelessness of that. It's uh, just a man in the water, no flotation device, just a guy treading water. He floated for about 20 hours according to the news articles. And he said he could see ships off in the distance and he would take off different articles of clothing to try to wave them down, you know, waving his socks, trying to get somebody's attention. But it was through the night and through the day and you can't just see this little speck of a person in the water and and nobody saw him, no luck, no nothing. He said uh, something big swam up to him and he said he didn't think it was a shark, but it was something big and scary and he kicked at it and it went away. He said multiple times he, he ended up swimming through a school of jellyfish and he was stuck. He said there was a piece of bamboo that floated by. He grabbed it and started chewing on it just for something that wasn't salt water in his mouth. 20 hours, 20 hours. He says he thinks about God. He thinks about his daughter. He wonders if this is it. And then finally he sees a cargo ship, which by some miracles actually coming his way. And he gets close enough that he can see figures on the ship. And he has just a tiny bit of strength left, but he yells out and he waves to get somebody's attention. And they see him. And they run to get a life preserver, but the ship is so high and where he is and the water's so choppy that they cannot throw the life preserver close enough for him to grab onto it. 
and he's feeling like he's got nothing left, no energy left, no strength left, and they're telling him, hold on. We have called the Coast Guard. They said they'll be here in 15 minutes. Hold on. You can make it. You can make it. Of course, the Coast Guard flies in, and they lower their safety device with the person, and they gather him up out of the water, and he said, he said, another 30 seconds, I think I would have just sunk beneath the waves. Finally, rescue is here. He actually did an interview later and he said he called it his 20-hour baptism because God changed his life. And who knows what his story will look like, but he survived after waiting just 20 hours. Humanity has waited thousands of years for Jesus to arrive on the scene to save us from being stuck and buried and trapped within choices of our own making. We're just floating there, wanting to give up, wanting there to be a rescue. And finally, Jesus arrives on the scene. The arrival of Jesus gives us hope. Matthew 1, 23 and 24, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. That's good news. That's good news. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here's where we are at Christmas. It's all about being rescued, even from the sin and the evil in us. It's all about being rescued. But here's the Here's the kicker. We have to trust. We have to trust. Look at what reminds you of what Isaiah said to Judah in Isaiah 7, 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So where is it in your life that you need to trust, that you're tempted to align yourself with Assyria, attempted to align yourself with the forces of the world because you're stuck and you feel trapped and you just want to be rescued? Remember that Christ's arrival into the world was a battle cry against sin and darkness and evil, even in our 